Welcome to the Pen and the Yod. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anche Emmet Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion by Yishlach. Going in battle and retaining your humanity, Jacob and Esau. Did you ever get in a fight where you were in junior high school or elementary school or high school? Yeah, definitely. First of all, I had two brothers all close in age, so we fought a lot uh, right in our own home, of course. Um, but then at school, certainly in, in grade school, I would get in fights every once in a while, at least, you know, one or two a year, it seems like. And I was I was not a tough kid. I was not looking for fights, but it just it was inevitable, uh, I think, with, especially with boys, that there were fights. I think by high school, I had we, we kind of worked it out and we left each other alone. But I have nothing but terrible memories of those fights. Yeah. I was usually on the uh, on the losing end. I, I don't think I got in that many fights growing up, but I remember this feeling in the pit of my stomach, one both of rage and fear at the same time, and the sort of most, almost existential moment where I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that I'm in this situation. I can't believe I'm about to have to fight somebody. And it, it was kind of all three of those things at once. It was the desire to uh, win, but also kind of a consciousness about what was going on. And after the fight, I actually don't remember if I won or lost. I just, what I remember is feeling badly about the whole thing. Yeah, I think that there's nothing much to feel good about, right? Um, even if you came out on the, on the winning end, why were you fighting in the first place? Something must have gone wrong for that to to happen. It's certainly like on the fights where I beat my brothers, which you know, I did get I did get some victories there. I don't I never felt good about it. The reason I raise this is because when we look to this week's portion, the portion of Vaishlach, you have Jacob returning to the land of Israel after 20-odd years of being in exile. Uh, he has coming back with his clan, with his sheep. He's a wealthy man now, and God has told him that he has to go back. And he's got messengers out there and trackers and spies, and they take note of the fact and bring a message back to him that Esau is on his way to meet him. You'll recall that the last time they were together, Esau had threatened to kill Jacob, for fooling their father into giving him the birth blessing after their father died. So after the father dies, Esau was simply going to do away with Jacob, which is the whole reason that Jacob had to run away. So now it's 20 years later, and the Torah also adds that Esau is coming, and he's got 300 military men. So how do you think Jacob's feeling right about now? Yeah, he's uh, feeling like it's uh, it's time to it's, it's, let's get ready to rumble here. It's, it's going to be messy. It's not going to be. You know, he's in trouble. He's in trouble. Exactly right. He's in trouble. And uh, he's clear with himself that his minutes might be numbered. So he takes his family, splits them up and sends them to different places so that they don't get killed. And then he goes to sleep. But while he's sleeping, an angel or some being comes to wrestle with him at night. And what's striking about the story is that Jacob wants his name changed in the story. They struggle till dawn, and whoever this being is, we learn is an angel, wants to escape because the light's coming. And uh, Jacob holds on to him and says, I'm not going to let you go until you change my name. And this is where the name Yisrael comes from, Israel and the one who strove with God and won. And so the, for the first time, Jacob doesn't run. He doesn't run away. He stays in there and fights. And the rabbis are going to say that he's fighting with his past and he limps and all the rest. 
But that day he now faces Esau. And the Torah says that he's very afraid, which is easy to understand, isn't it? I mean, I would be terrified, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, you're facing an army with 300 men and you're you're up against your brother, which nobody can really look forward to relish a fight like that to begin with. Right. And we also know from the very beginning that Esau is a man of the field. He's a experienced hunter and warrior. And Jacob was sort of a homebody. You know, he was the guy who kind of stayed home, sat in the tent. And so he's afraid. And as you said, could easily lose his life. But Rashi, the great commentator, makes this really interesting statement. He says he was afraid that he might be killed. And he was afraid that he would have to kill. And so this is kind of the dilemma. It's not just that he might get killed, but the dilemma was that he might have to kill his brother. And he was struggling with that idea. And I think that's such an interesting understanding of that moment. And I'm interested in knowing your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it it reminded me a little bit of something I talked about in the Muhammad Ali book. And by the way, there's another person who changed his name and got back um, into the fighting game after changing his name. Um, But one of the things that boxers talk about a lot is that you have to overcome, you have to wrestle with your fear of dying and your fear of killing every time you step in the ring, because that's the purpose of, of why you fight, right? The fight is to injure and possibly kill. But nobody wants to actually render that outcome. Nobody wants to kill. Nobody wants to be killed even more strongly. But if you're going to fight, you have to find a way mentally to subdue those fears and to engage in the battle. Um, in, in the case of boxing, it's for sport. You can argue whether there's any purpose to that at all. And perhaps there's no way to justify that. In, in an instance like this, uh, where you're, where you're, you and your nation are threatened, where there may not be an option, uh, you know, how do you overcome those feelings? Well, there was one fight where Ali seemed to relish beating up his opponent and screaming out, what's my name? what's my name? And we see kind of a cruelty and almost a, just a just a joy of hurting someone in that particular fight. Isn't that true? Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, he, he changed his name when he joined the Nation of Islam, and, and a lot of people refused to recognize that. They continued to call him Cassius Clay, which he thought of as his slave name, and he took that as a grave insult, took that as a, as a challenge to his religious freedom and his religious beliefs, and he was going to punish those who refused to acknowledge his beliefs. So um, in that case, it definitely felt like an act of aggression. It was not just a sport anymore. So with this understanding of Jacob and Rashi, and I think to Muhammad Ali to a certain extent, and anyone who's had to go into battle, I mean, if people could simply pass off killing other people, we wouldn't have post-traumatic stress disorder as such a glaring issue after a war, would we? No, that's right. Uh, if we could find a way to uh, settle these things with a deck of cards or a chessboard, we would all be a lot more civilized and we wouldn't have the uh, the mental health issues that we have and we wouldn't have the loss of life. I'm reminded of a very famous quotation that's attributed to Golda Meir. My understanding was is that this is what she said to Anwar Sadat when he came to Jerusalem. And Remember that everyone felt like this was like a messianic moment when Sadat came to Jerusalem, that peace and the possibility of peace was um, was in the air. But Golda Meir, if you recall, was happened to be the prime minister uh, during the Yom Kippur War, which Sadat kind of masterminded. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting history with that. And while Sadat was preparing preparing for war, he was also preparing for peace. He was reaching out through secret channels to the Israelis to say that he wanted to talk about peace possibilities. And Golda Meir herself and Moshe Dayan and others said, "Oh, he, they're they're not serious. This is a trap." And after a while, he stopped trying, and then he went to war. So this is a very complicated relationship. And she's reported to have said to him, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children. We cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We will only have peace with Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. I think it's just a, a remarkable statement. And I think it's, it's really kind of gets to the heart of not losing your humanity in the battle and not losing your ability to see the humanity of the other person on the other side of this battle as well. And to me, this is the struggle within human beings between that animal aspect of us and that which is human or the divine image, if you will. I just think that that's such an important distinction that you might have to go to war, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't struggle with the consequences. Oh, no question about that. The, the challenges in the, the nitty gritty, the reality of it, once you start fighting, is it possible not to hate your enemies? You know, we see these horrifying war crimes being committed and we have rules of engagement in war and they're violated all the time because we justify it by saying it's, you know, it's an existential battle. You know, if we don't do this to them, they're going to do it to us. And those morals somehow seem to slip away once we engage with the enemy. And I wonder if there's a lesson to be learned there from from Jacob and Esau that can help us make sense of that. First of all, there's just war theory, there's the Geneva Convention and things of that nature. And that has to be part of the human condition or people will revert as we are doing to the use of poison gas and all kinds of horrible ways of killing others that dehumanize them. But I think the insight here, and what I think you're alluding to, is that dehumanizing your enemy also dehumanizes you because it's going to open the door for you to do things that you wouldn't do if you saw your enemy as a human being. So ultimately, it dehumanizes you. And part of the struggle in Israel is that young people, 19-year-old kids, really, you know, they're going into occupied areas. And, you know, people respond to them or kids are throwing rocks and suddenly they are in a situation where they're going to have to use their weapons or they're going to hurt someone who doesn't have the same armaments they do, but they do have deadly weapons, even if there are stones. And they come back and they've been changed by that. This is the issue that war is hell. But the hell doesn't end after the victory or the loss. It continues on through us. I think one of the great differences between the Torah, for instance, and the Christian Bible is that the Torah doesn't shy away from the actual issues and just pretend that there's going to be a day of peace for all humankind or turn the other cheek. The Torah simply says, these are the ugly realities of life and you have to kind of face them. And I think that's what's going on here too. And Esau is actually, and Jacob are doing that. Now at the end of the day, they don't actually fight, but they embrace but the preparation really kind of reflects all of the issues we've been talking about. Yeah, they're prepared to fight, and that's um, a frightening proposition. Don't we justify what we're about to do by creating a narrative about the other person that works for what we want to do? 
right? They're our enemy. They're the worst. They, this is what they did. And oftentimes, without actually looking at the world through their eyes. And I think that's one of the great challenges that we face. No, no question about it that uh, you know, we, uh, we fight first and then talk later or not at all. And that's why we end up fighting again. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi.